Amen. All right. So here we are in Zechariah chapter 11. And before we go through this, just a reminder of a few things. So one thing that is very important that we remember, this is really going to be important next week when we get into chapter 12. It's so important that we remember that what we are seeing here is the way events are supposed to play out when the Messiah comes. After they build their temple, after God puts his name on Jerusalem again, then God intended to do some great things with his people Israel, ultimately that would have led to the Messiah coming and setting up his kingdom. When, but when the Jews rejected the Messiah, it did change some things. There's no doubt about that. Zechariah 6 proves these things are going to come to pass if they were going to follow the Lord. So while many of the promises that God made, are, he's still going to do his part. The way the outcome is, the way things are going to look when it happens are going to be different. And it is so important that we understand that. And people will accuse you of saying that God broke his promise. No, actually, if things played out the way the dispensationalists say, then God would have broke his promise. Because he says these things are going to come to pass if you follow the Lord. They didn't follow the Lord, so that means they can't come to pass that way. But we do see where God is going to do the things that he said that he was going to do. And we see examples in Zechariah. And in this chapter, we see a very significant uh, passage of Scripture that we know was fulfilled, where it talks about his price being 30 pieces of silver. So right there is an example of a prophecy that's very clear, one that Jesus fulfilled, one that the New Testament specifically refers to. And so, therefore, people are like, you know, exactly as it says in Zechariah's way, things are going to happen. No, that's not the case. Even how that happened, you know, just because, a, you know, that part of it was fulfilled doesn't mean everything else that's mentioned in there is going to be fulfilled. That was just Jesus doing his part. So let's go ahead and go through chapter 11 and let's look at a few things, and, and there's some very important lessons I want to show you in here. So first off, one thing we've got to notice about the language in here is that it is poetic language. Okay, Now, don't get freaked out. Sometimes the Bible speaks in a poetic way. It is not necessarily meant to be taken literal. Okay, But at the same time, it does have a literal message to it, doesn't it? Okay? For example, when you tell your kids you, know, you love them this much, well, is that really all you love them? All right. what, you know, what are you doing? You know, you're, 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 you're just trying to emphasize, you know, as much as I can stretch my hands out, you know, that's how much I love you. And if I can do even farther, I do it. It's just, you know, it, it's poetic. All right. And don't make me get poetic right now. I'm not very good at that kind of thing. But you all know that we all use that type of language even to this day. Okay. You know, it's like, I, you know, I love you more than I love this whole world. Oh, really? So you would let the whole world just, you know, burn for me? You know, what would that do to me, too? You know, if the whole world goes, I go, you know, don't take that literal, okay? Don't take that literal. Just get the message. It just means I love you a lot, okay? In other words, you're just the most important thing. Don't go, and, and it's amazing how people do that with the Bible. There'll be a poetic verse or something in there, and then they just go crazy with it. And you got to watch, you got to watch out for that. But look what it says in verse 1. Open thy doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour thy cedars. Okay, why does God want them to open their doors? You know, if it's just going to let fire devour them. Okay, you know, he's speaking figuratively here. It says, Howl, fir tree, for the cedar is fallen because the mighty are spoiled. Howl, O ye oaks of Bashan, for the forest of the vintage has come down. Has anybody ever heard trees howl before? I haven't either. Okay, 
just speaking figuratively, basically just saying, hey, y'all are in trouble. There's destruction that's coming your way. And the truth is the trees should be howling because they're about to be burned up, is what he's saying. And it says, and in verse 3, there is a voice of the howling of the shepherds, for their glory is spoiled, a voice of the roaring of young lions, for the pride of Jordan is spoiled. So this passage here, it talks a lot about the shepherds, okay? And once again, when, you're, when we're studying these things, it's important we remember what we've talked about in previous weeks. Because we've talked about shepherds in previous weeks. We went back to Jeremiah. We're going to do it again tonight. Showing how that was one of the things that Israel was in trouble for. Their shepherds were wicked. Their shepherds weren't telling them the truth. They had false teachers that were, they were listening to that we saw last week. And so God's rebuking these shepherds. And he's pronouncing judgment on these shepherds. And so... Uh, when he, so when he's talking about howling, you know, he mentions Lebanon opening their gates. He mentions the pride of Jordan being spoiled. Ultimately, what this is talking about here is it's basically saying these lands, these countries that are bordering Israel, because these are borders of Israel here, you all are in trouble. Okay? Because remember, too, whenever the Bible does speak in a poetic way, it does have a literal message it's trying to get across, too. And the literal message it's trying to get across here is it's a warning to those who were enemies of Israel that bordered Israel, letting them know that judgment's coming for them, that they're going to be suffering, they're going to be destroyed, they're going to be burned up. And so it says, thus saith the Lord my God, feed the flock of slaughter. So he's talking to the shepherds here now because the Lord is angry at the shepherds. It says, whose possessors slay them and hold themselves not guilty. And they that sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, for I am rich, and their own shepherds pity them not. And remember, too, a lot of times we think of pastors as like just a New Testament thing. But a pastor, a shepherd, it's the same thing. And they had them in the Old Testament, too. And God called them out because the, uh, you know, the men who were leading, who were shepherding the people of Israel during that time, they weren't doing what they were supposed to do. They weren't feeding the flock. The people, I mean... I mean, here's proof that they weren't feeding the flock. Just the simple fact, back in Josiah's day, we see that Josiah, he'd never even read the word of the Lord. He'd never heard the word of the Lord. They found it stored away somewhere in the temple, and they had to dust it off, and then he went and read it, and then all of a sudden, you know, he realized we're in big trouble. What was going on? No pastors preaching the truth. We have the same kind of thing going on today. Churches all over the place. Pastors aren't getting up, and they're not dusting off their Bibles and speaking, you know, proclaiming truth from the Bible. And the people in the churches don't even know they're in trouble. They don't even know that they're a joke. They don't even know that they're supposed to be soul winning. They have no idea. I heard an evangelist one time talking about how he was preaching in a church one time, and he got up and just, you know, he thought it was okay to do this. He started ripping on women wearing pants in church. And he said he had... Uh, several women, one of them, the pastor's wife, that came afterwards and like, I didn't know we weren't supposed to be doing that. And they were like upset that they didn't know that that was a problem. And then all of a sudden then they got it right, but it's like, where was the pastor on that? Why, why, why doesn't the pastor talk about these things? And let me tell you, there's a lot of good people today sitting in some bad churches that unfortunately have wicked shepherds, and they just don't know it. Nobody's been good enough to just tell them the truth and just, you know, get up and let her rip. And then, unfortunately, they get so used to these soft, you know, 
spoken, limp-wristed pansy preachers, whenever they do accidentally hear somebody rip in face, they think that person's crazy. And that's pretty sad. That shows the state that we're in, because preachers today, they've gotten this idea that pastors are supposed to be like Reverend Oldens from Little House on the Prairie, or just, you know, pastors on TV shows are always weak and effeminate. But you know what? It's an accurate representation of most pastors, isn't it? You know, and then if he is, you know, a manly, rip-facing preacher, he's always a hypocrite, you know, and he's always got these, you know, deep, dark, hidden sins, and it's like some cult leader. Every time. That's by design. And preachers have figured that out. Or they, you know, they figured out how they're supposed to act. The good one's always, you know, the effeminate one. But that's not what the Bible teaches. And Israel had a big problem during this time. Their shepherds were telling them the truth. That was one of the reasons that they got in all the trouble that they got into. And one thing we've got to remember, something that's very interesting about the book of Zechariah it is almost like, and keep this in mind, this is going to be important here in a little bit. It's almost like, the book of Zechariah is almost like a sequel to Jeremiah. It really is. Because many of the things that Zechariah talks about are the very things that Jeremiah talked about. But by the time this book's written, Jeremiah, he's dead and he's gone. But it's like what we're seeing here in this book is we're seeing reminders of all the things that Jeremiah prophesied, showing that they came to pass. We see God reminding them of the things that he warned them about by the mouth of Jeremiah, trying to find out if they've learned their lesson. And then we see God, when he brings these things up again, that Jeremiah called them out for, he's not necessarily just calling them out because they're still having this problem, but it's just kind of a reminder that this was a problem. Y'all better get it right this time. That's, that's what's going on. And he's, it's also another way to remind them of why they went through the judgment that they went through. And notice in verse 5 how it says that they hold themselves not guilty. That's the false prophets. Now, we're not guilty. We're good. They've declared themselves the good one. They've declared themselves the Christ-like ones. But us, when we actually act like Jesus, if we call people vipers or something like that, you're not very Christ-like. When we throw people out of our church or drive people out with a whip, and I haven't even gone as far as using a whip, you know, we're told we're not very Christ-like. When we actually act like Christ, when we preach the words of Christ, we're told we're not very Christ-like. By who? By a bunch of preachers who have declared themselves righteous instead of just going off what the Bible says. And it says, uh, mentions too, their own shepherds pity them not. They don't feel bad for their people. They don't feel bad that the people in their churches are on their way to hell. Think about how many people whose doors we knock on on a weekly basis in this area who go to church and they don't know if they're saved. And you know, their pastors don't care. Their pastors don't care one bit as long as they're getting their paycheck, as long as everything's good for them. They don't care. They have no pity. These people, they can die and go to hell and they will go and they will preach their funerals and talk about them like they're in heaven. Talk about like everything's fine and everything's okay. And in the end, you know, love wins and God just lets everybody in heaven. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. And that's, we've got that same kind of junk going on today. And you say, how come, why is that? You know why? Because man, they never change. It's always about the filthy lucre for these people. And that's why, they, you know, in the New Testament, it warns about, you know, preachers who are doing it for filthy lucre's sake. 
Because there is some filthy lucre that you can get if you go tell people what they want. If you tickle their ears, you can have that. But you know what? God hasn't called us to that. And shame on those and woe to those who do that type of thing. But look what it says in verse 6. It says, I will no more pity the inhabitants of the land, saith the Lord, but lo, I will deliver the men, every one into his neighbor's hand, and into the hand of his king, and they shall smite the land, and out of their hand I will not deliver them, and I will feed the flock of slaughter, even you, O poor of the flock. And I took unto me two staves, the one I called beauty, and the other I called bands, and I fed the flock. Okay? Now it appears, this is a pretty deep chapter here. Okay? It's a deep chapter. My wife told me some of this stuff is deep, and it's not some of the most exciting things she's ever heard. But you know what? You know, I told her, I was like, well, you know, we can't all be just the simple, you know, Adam and Eve, Garden of Eden, you know, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. We've got to cover these things, too. And it's deep stuff, but it, it, these things are important, too, because it's people's ignorance on these books that's causing people to stay with the dispensationalists and causing them to just trust them because they don't know anything about these books. And because these guys, the dispensationalists, know the main prophecy verses by themselves, they're able to just go and do whatever they want to with it. So we've got to cover these things. But look at this. So it, appear, it appears that this passage is showing that while God was not going to deliver the people, he was going to take care of the poor of those who were being slaughtered. Okay? Because notice how he says, I will feed the flock of slaughter. Even you, O poor of the flock. But you know what? There's no deliverance for those who are doing the slaughtering. Because understand, too, this is why reprobates are so bad. This is why false prophets are so bad. Because there's a lot of sheep out there that are being destroyed by these people. That's why we hate reprobates so much. Okay? That's why we hate the homosexuals so much. We realize it's not just a matter of us hating them because they're a queer. We hate them because they defile other people. They hurt other people. They prey on the innocent. Okay? So therefore, we're going to hate them if we love other people. We hate murderers because they kill other people. We don't hate them just because we just can't stand their personality or or because we have differences of opinions, or because we have different political views. No, we hate them because they hurt other people, and they are, they're bad. And so God, he's not giving any deliverance to these people. Because un understand, too, these people who follow the wicked, who follow the false prophets, they will be destroyed. God's not going to look at them and say, well, you were just deceived. No, they're going to be they're accountable for that. But... Those who do deceive, they are far worse than the deceived. I preached a message a while back on the sin of being deceived. It is a sin for you to be deceived. And don't make me preach that message again. Go listen to it. But understand, the deceiver is worse. And there is, I believe, a hotter place in hell for them. And I believe there is greater judgment for people like that. But either way, we need to keep on exposing these people preaching the truth because there's innocent people out there that are being led astray and that are suffering. And we need to actually pity these people and try to do something for them. <clears throat> and so there's, you know, there's no deliverance also for doing nothing about it. Those who are doing nothing. Okay. Is everybody participating in the slaughtering? No, but there's, all, there's a lot of people that aren't doing anything about it. No deliverance for them. And in our country today, We've got, you know, your elites that are, 
running our country, that are sending it down the toilet, that are actively doing damage. But, you know, we've got a mass multitude of people who are doing absolutely nothing about it. They're not saying anything about it. They're just silent. And as long as the problem isn't on their doorstep, they don't care. Well, you know what? No deliverance for them either. Okay? But those who are suffering, those who are the ones being victimized, I believe God wants to help them. The feeding was for the victims that he's talking about here. And it says in verse 8, Three shepherds also I cut off in one month, and my soul loathed them, and their soul abhorred me. Say, God doesn't hate anybody. Well, he hated these three shepherds that he cut off. And I don't know who this was, but God's just saying, I cut off three of them in one month. I killed three of them. Because my soul loathed them. Okay? And their soul abhorred me. Okay? So, once again, this is another verse you can just throw in there for those who say God doesn't hate anybody. Alright, well, what do you think it means to loathe? That's an extreme hate. It means he, he detested them. So, Verse 9 says, Then said I, I will not feed you. That that dieth, let it die. And that that is to be cut off, let it be cut off. And let the rest eat every one the flesh of another. And I took my staff, even beauty, and cut it asunder, that I might break my covenant, which I had made with all the people. So what are these two staves that are mentioned here? Beauty and bands. Okay, now turn over to Ezekiel chapter 37, and I believe this will be a help. Now, Another way we can help uh, that will help understand what this is. Because once again, this is, this is deep stuff. Alright? It's deep. If you're not getting all of it, uh, I'm, not, uh, I'm not picking on you. That just means I'm not a very good teacher. Or maybe, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll insult myself. <laughs> but remember last, remember last week, we talked about this last week, how we talked about the house of Judah and the house of Israel. And how they were kind of two people. And how he mentioned how he was going to restore Ephraim, right? Remember, they were two people. For a while. Well, look at Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 15. Now, this is a passage that the dispensationalists like to make for, you know, 1948 and all that foolishness. We don't have time to go into all that goofiness. But look what it says here. In verse 15, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Moreover, thou son of man, take thee one stick and write upon it for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions, and then take another stick and write upon it for Joseph the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. So we can kind of see a similar vision here, right? We have two sticks here, two staves there. But I, do, I believe these two staves, beauty and bands, they represent the same thing, the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And it says in verse 17, And join them one to another into one stick, and they shall become one in thine hand. And when the children of thy people shall speak unto thee, saying, Wilt thou not show us thou what meanest by these? Say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and all the tribes of Israel his fellows, and I will put them with him, even with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they shall be one in mine hand. And the sticks whereon thou ridest shall be in thine hand before their eyes. And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whither they be gone, and will gather them on every side, and bring them into their own land. Now, this was before the captivity when he's talking about this. In Zechariah, we are after the captivity now. This is after he's brought them back. It says, And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be to them all, and they shall be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all, neither shall they defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, 
nor with any of their transgressions, but I will save them out of all their dwelling places wherein they have sinned and will cleanse them so that it shall be to me a people and I will be their God. Remember this verse. And David, my servant, shall be king over them and they shall have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob, my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt, and they shall dwell therein, even they and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be a prince with them forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. Now, I, I don't want to take all the time, but we, we covered this in one of the earlier weeks. Notice how it mentions here, this is clearly something for the future, right? Because this has, has this happened yet? Is all Israel one kingdom? Is David their king? Are they not following idols anymore? Now, you and I know this is something for the future. We would say that Ezekiel 37 at the beginning is referring to the rapture. Okay? But at the same time, what we're seeing here in Ezekiel was what was intended to happen under the Old Covenant. But it's not going to happen exactly like this because notice how it mentions how God's going to put his sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. And remember in Revelation chapter 20, when it's talking about, or chapter 21, I'm sorry, where it talks about the new heaven and new earth, how it goes on to explain how there was no temple in the midst of them. Because the Lord himself is the temple and they will be his people. So understand what we're seeing there in Ezekiel 37, that as it's written there is not going to happen in that way. There is not going to be a temple that changed with the new covenant. They physically are not going to be his people forever. They would have been if they would have accepted the Messiah. They would have been his people forevermore. But now they are not. Why? Because they rejected the Messiah. And what we're seeing here in chapter 11 with the beauty and the bands, I believe it's a reference to um, basically those two groups again. Because God intended to, whenever the Messiah came, to join those people and make them all one. They would all be one kingdom. David would be their king. But that is not going to happen because they didn't follow the Lord. Y'all get that? Okay, and just all you have to do, all right, if, if we cover this in previous weeks. I don't want to cover it again. But if somebody's, you know, if you only heard this message, just go read that passage in Ezekiel 37 and compare it with Revelation chapter 21. And it mentions how God was going to dwell in the midst of them and they were going to be his people. Jesus said the exact same thing in Revelation 21. So our other, for if 30, chapter 37 is going to happen the way they say then that means God has two different people. When he specifically has one people. And God's going to dwell with both of his two different people as one forever. It, it doesn't make sense. Okay, There's not going to be two different gods in two different places dwelling with two different people forever. It's all one people. And it's those that are a, a part of Israel under the new covenant, not the old covenant. I wish I had time to go through all that and prove it. I proved it before, but it, I, I needed to bring it up again. To show how this all makes sense with that. You, ha you have to go. I don't even remember what chapter it was where I covered that. It was pretty early on in this study. But it says in verse 11. It says, and it was broken in that day. And so the poor of the flock that waited upon me knew that it was of the Lord. And so 
Uh, verse 12, And I said unto them, If ye think good, give me my price. And if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said unto me, Cast it unto the potter, uh, a goodly price that I was priced at of them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them into the house of the Lord. So Matthew chapter 27, go ahead and turn over there. Now, we all know what the fulfillment of that was, right? We, that's, that, that's pretty clear right there. But what, is, what does that mean? What, is the, what was the significance of Judas doing this? Because okay, notice the language here in Zechariah 11, how it says, If ye think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said unto me, talking about Zechariah here, Cast it unto the potter, a goodly price that I was priced at of them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah, and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Now, why was Zechariah doing this? Wasn't it Judas Iscariot that did this? Why is Zechariah writing this in prophecy saying that he did it? Well, let's go to Matthew chapter 27 and verse 3. It says, Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself, and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned, and that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple, and departed, and went and hanged himself. And the Lord, or and the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful for to put them into the treasury, because it is the price of blood. And they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Wherefore that field was called the field of blood unto this day. Thus was fulfilled that, that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value, and gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord appointed me. So, first off, while it was Judas that did the betraying of Jesus for the silver, notice how the prophet refers to himself as the one doing that. I personally believe it was because the prophet was representing Israel as a whole. And I believe, too, that while it was Judas that actually did this act, did not Israel get credited for the crucifixion of Jesus and for all that was done? You say, well, it was just Judas that did it. Well, you know what? It was just Achan that took the accursed thing. That's the way it worked then. So, all, understand... This betrayal of Jesus, this wasn't something that was just about Judah. This was all of Israel. And you know what? They were all fine with it. They were all okay with it. Even later after the resurrection, you know, when they're, they're, they're talking, you know, saying, His blood be on us and on our children. So, it's, it's important that we understand all that. But uh, did anybody notice anything, though, from Matthew that seemed a little strange when it quoted this passage? Anybody, anybody catch... Anything weird in there? Uh, contradiction in the Bible. Spoken by Jeremy. Now, who actually spoke that? It was Zechariah, wasn't it? Now, if you go and you read through all the book of Jeremiah, you will not see a reference to of Jeremiah talking about this event, but yet it credits Jeremiah for for this. Now, why is that? Now, we're kind of going to, you know, outside the Bible for this source, but from something uh, things I've read on that on this, 
Jeremiah, it was kind of the main prophetic book of the Old Testament. I mean, it is a very significant book. It is what prophesied of the coming destruction from Babylon. It prophesied the 70 years of captivity. The Daniel, when writing about the 70 weeks of Daniel, he refers to the prophet Jeremiah. He understood the things in Jeremiah. And he came up with the whole 70 weeks are determined upon thy people, broke it all down. That I mean, literally read right up to the coming of the Messiah. It was Daniel that did all that from the book of Jeremiah. It was Daniel that understood they were about to come out of captivity from the book of Jeremiah. And it's the book of Zechariah that's pretty much just a continuation of the book of Jeremiah. So the truth is, what many, what some have said is back in the day, you know, before we received the canon of scriptures as we have it today, you know, you had several different sections of the Bible. You had, for example, the Pentateuch, right? And isn't that what our Bible is today? It's a collection of 66 books, but it can often be put in the category of the Pentateuch or the books of Moses. You have the historical books. You have the poetic books. And then you have the prophets, right? And what did the Bible often refer to? The, it would just refer to it as the prophets. They say that the prophets, the books of the prophets, were often just referred to as Jeremiah. Because that was the main, that was the main book of the prophetic books. And they say, too, that back then it was the first in the books of the prophets. It, they weren't always in the same order that we have today. I don't know for sure that all that's true, but just based on different things I've read about these things, that's, you know, that's what a lot of people believe, that Jeremiah was kind of sometimes referred, a way to refer to just all the books of the prophets. Just like I said, hey, turn to the books, book of Moses. You know, that's, you know I, I understand he wrote all of them, but it's just a reference to the Pentateuch or a group of books. So that could be one of the reasons. Another reason it could have done that too is just because of the fact that Zechariah is pretty much picking up where Jeremiah left off. It's just showing the fulfillment of all these things because he repeats so many things. So I don't think it's anything we need to get real freaked out about. I think it's just, I think it's just in Matthew, it's just referring to what the prophet said. But uh, anyway, anyway, I'm not going to go throw my whole Bible out because of that. Especially when that prophecy is really specific and sure enough it came to pass. Uh, that's pretty impressive right there. If I don't understand everything about who was credited for it, that's not a big deal. And don't, don't throw your Bible out over something like that. So um, verse 14 says, Then I cut asunder my, my other staff, even bands, that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. And no, Judah and Israel and the tribes, they no longer matter. You know, now God has made us all of one blood. Now there's just saved and lost. Those things really don't matter anymore. But understand, it was originally God's plan to restore all them, make them one again. But that is, that is not going to happen to them. And so it says in verse 15, And the Lord said unto me, Take unto thee yet the instruments of a foolish shepherd. For lo, I will raise up a shepherd in the land, which shall not visit those that be cut off. Neither shall seek the young one, nor heal that is broken, nor feed that that standeth still. But he shall eat the flesh of the fat and tear their claws in pieces. Woe to the idle shepherd that leaveth the flock. The sword shall be upon his arm, and upon his right eye his arm shall be clean dried up, and his right eye 
shall be utterly darkened. Now, that verse right there is one that I don't know if you all saw my I did a video about a while back where uh, I, sh- I showed an example of where dispensationalism leads. And remember, I explained this a few weeks ago. In dispensationalism, they make up events, and then they find an obscure verse that appears to be talking about their weird event that they made up. Okay? Now, right here is an example of one that was done. Spencer Smith, all right, he, he's preached here a couple times before. Don't worry, he won't again. But... He did a video, Promote Dispensationalism, and Spencer Smith, he's, he's been begging for attention forever. He, for a long time, just made video after video against Pastor Anderson, but wasn't getting any attention from that. And so he gave up. He took all his videos of Pastor Anderson are gone. So then he started going after the contemporary Christian music people. That was safer for him. He's a missionary. He's dependent on support. He can't get too controversial. Or he might lose support. And then he finally got some attention from that. He kind of talks about whatever is trending, you know, in the political world and your Fox News Baptist talking points. He likes to make videos about it just to help him get, you know, clicks and subscribers and things on YouTube. But when it comes to actual doctrine, it is hilarious to listen to this guy talk because he gets a lot of his stuff from Sluter, I think, him and Sluter are buddies. And he took this verse right here, and he was explaining how the Avengers movies were basically telling the story of end times from Satan's perspective. And how on the Avengers movie, you have Thanos, who represents Jesus, you know, because he snaps his finger and like half the people disappear. That's like a picture of the rapture, but it's bad. And then the only one who was able to kill Thanos was Thor, who only had one eye. All right, now, he's like, now you might not have known this, but the Bible teaches that the Antichrist is only going to have one eye. And it says it right there, and he quotes this verse, Woe to the idle shepherd that leave the flock, the sword shall be upon his arm, and upon his right eye. His arm shall be cleaned right up, and his right eye shall be utterly darkened. And he's like, now you might not have known that, you know, but the spirits that run in Hollywood, they all knew that. And so that was a picture of, you know, that's, that's the Antichrist there showing he's the only one that can uh, kill Jesus and stuff like that. I mean, folks... That is so stupid, it's not even funny. But if you've just decided, if you this is, this is kind of a Bible interpretation help thing for you. If you have decided that the Antichrist is only going to have one eye, then all right, this, then you can go to use a verse like this if you're talking to a bunch of ignorant morons that don't know anything about the Bible and don't look at context for this. You can come up with something like that. Okay? And that's the type of thing these guys do. That's probably why the dispensations are teaching, you know, if you take the mark of the beast, you know, they cut your hand off or, or pluck your eye out. Except, wouldn't plucking your eye out identify you with the Antichrist <laughs> if he's only got one eye? <laughs> so that's not going to work. But I don't know. You know, th- that theory is going to fall apart right there. But anyway, folks, that's just stupid. All right. Now, what does this mean here? Because remember, we're seeing a lot of figurative and poetic language in here because ultimately what this chapter is about, it's warning the shepherds who refuse to do their job. They are under a curse. Jeremiah chapter 23. Go ahead and turn back to Jeremiah real quick. Jeremiah chapter 23, and I'll show you what that passage means. Because it's, it's actually pretty simple. And it usually is. The verses that the dispensations make super complicated and deep are usually really simple. And just you just, you just have to pay attention. 
But it says in Jeremiah 23, Woe be unto the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pastors, saith the Lord. Therefore thus saith the Lord God of Israel against the pastors that feed my people. Ye have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not visited them. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doings, saith the Lord. And I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries where I have driven them and will bring them again to their folds. And they shall be fruitful and increase, and I will set up shepherds over them, which shall feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall they be lacking, saith the Lord. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise up unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. So this is God prophesying against the pastors. This is why they were in trouble. And he's saying, I'm going to raise up pastors that are going to feed my people. And it mentions David being king again. Zechariah talks about it. This is what was supposed to happen. After this temple got built, they were supposed to start following the Lord. And then, and you could figure out how, when the Messiah was going to come based on the book of Daniel. And Jesus came during that time. If he had come, if they would have been doing the right thing, if they would have accepted him as the Messiah, he would have cleaned him up like a fuller soap. And they would have offered up an acceptable sacrifice, and he would have set up his kingdom, and he would have fulfilled all these things that he said he was going to do. And in the meantime, too, while he's doing all this destruction to all their enemies, he was going to destroy these bad pastors. That's what he's going to do. And how was he going to destroy them? We've seen throughout this book, it was going to be through warfare. He was going to go to battle against them, and he was going to defeat them in battle. That's what was talked about. In the previous chapters, so here in Zechariah, when he talks about their arm being clean, dried up, okay? Let's look at it again. Uh, I lost my thought. Verse 17 uh, says, The sword shall be upon his arm and upon his right eye. His arm shall be clean, dried up, and his right eye shall be utterly darkened. Now, why is it saying that, okay? Now, when I was in Ireland... The O'Hagans, they took me to a castle. And in, in this castle, the, everything that, the way this castle's built, everything that's laid out, it, is, it was designed for protection. It was designed in a way to defend itself in the best way possible against attack. And to go up to the main bedroom area, they had this spiral staircase that you go up, all, all carved out of stone. And they were trip steps that they had. All the steps, they were uneven. They were like different heights. That way, people running up these steps that aren't used to it are going to be tripping. The other thing, too, the spiral staircase, it kind of twirled this way. So when you're going up the stairs, you're not able to swing your right arm and stuff because the wall's in the way, which makes it so you'd have to – if you're fighting people on the stairs, you have to use your left hand, which is going to put you at a disadvantage, while they, coming down at you, are able to use their right hand – giving them a great advantage. They also have the higher ground too. And the truth is, the way it's always been, you know, most people have always been right-handed. In fact, during that day, and they were talking about this during that day, it was like considered a bad thing if you were left-handed. They thought something was wrong with you if you were left-handed. And the truth is, most people are right-handed. And so that if you're fighting a battle, you're pretty dependent on that right arm. And if it's dried up, if you're not able to use it, you're not going to fight very so when he's talking about their right arm being dry, their arm being dried up, it's just basically showing they're going to be ineffective in battle. If your right eye is darkened, 
and you're not see that's your main eye that most people are going to use if you're shooting a bow and arrow for target it's just showing how they are going to be weakened it's a poetic way of just saying you're going to be useless in a battle that's what he's teaching right there it's not talking about the antichrist it's showing us that he's going to have one eye that's just goofiness but you know the truth is that's what happens when you're a dispensationalist. That's what happens when you hang around rucktards and sluter and people like that. They're going to give you all these weird things and get stuff stuck in your head. But, you know, the, you know, what I believe is going on here, that I believe this is an example of what they got after Christ. Because if you study history and the people, of the, after, you know, after the time of Christ, you study the history about Jerusalem. One thing that's interesting about this and I believe this very well could be what it's referring to. Okay? And people get nervous when you start using history instead of Bible. But some, there's some periods of time where we don't have Bible. But if you study history, you go read the works of Josephus. Whenever, before Israel got destroyed in 70 AD, you had two main groups there in Jerusalem. You had the believers and you had the Jews. You, during that time, they had a bunch of false prophets coming in there while they were being compassed about with armies, telling them, hey, it's time to get, or you all need to stay. God's going to deliver you where all the believers, the true people, they were saying, it's time for us to get out of here. It's time for us to heed the warnings. And according to history, when Jerusalem was taken over and destroyed, there were no Christians there. And you can read that from multiple sources that tell you about that time, that no Christians were killed in the destruction of Jerusalem because they all had heeded the warnings and fled the cities while the false prophets got the Jews to stay held up there and they got wiped out in a slaughter that was unlike any they had ever seen before. And you know what? They weren't protected. They weren't saved during that time. Because they were under the wrath of God. I believe that could be a reference to the, the shepherd that he ended up raising up for them. One that was ineffective in battle. One that accomplished nothing. One that ultimately got them killed. He offered a way of deliverance, but unfortunately, the ones who didn't believe on Christ, they didn't have God's protection. And they ended up suffering as a result. I think that's probably what this is talking about. But even if this is a reference to the Antichrist, that is not. this is not talking about him only having one eye. That's just the, one of the foolish things that I've ever heard, but like I, said, I don't expect much more from people like him. So this verse is ultimately saying the idle shepherd will be handicapped when it comes to fight. In other words, he'll be easily defeated. That's all that's saying right there. And so this chapter, this is a warning to the shepherds who refuse to do their job. They are under the curse that Jeremiah talked about. And Zechariah often reminds people of what was prophesied in Jeremiah. Once again, this is God making sure they learn their lesson. That's what this is all about. And so hopefully, uh, hopefully that, all, that all makes sense to you. And uh, next week's chapter 12. Chapter 12 is one of the most misused of all the chapters in Zechariah. Because it has an end times as a rapture prophecy in there so obviously that one gets 
completely abused. And so hopefully we'll clear that, uh, that one up real well. So let's go ahead and close the word of prayer. So dear Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. I pray you'll help everyone uh, to get something from these things. Help them to uh, take the time to learn these things and study them so we don't get led astray by the false prophets who try to uh, twist these verses and take them out of context. And I just pray that you'll uh, bless everyone as they go their separate ways this week. In your name we pray. Amen.